Uh, Ruth chapter 4. Let's get on this before we digress any further. Um, you remember, if you've been around the past three weeks, where this is going. Ruth chapter 1 starts tragically. Right? Um, a famine in Bethlehem has driven this family to the land of Moab. And uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, move there in search of food. Why they're there, their two sons marry, Moabite women. And in the course of time, all three of the men die. Naomi's husband, uh, Ruth's husband, and Orpah's husband. Leaves them in a very bad, vulnerable position. And we are uh, confronted with the bitterness of Naomi as chapter 1 unfolds for the situation that they find themselves in. Highly, highly vulnerable. Bad place to be. There's a glimmer of hope as chapter 1 ends. There's a ha there has been a, a harvest now in Bethlehem. Food has returned to Bethlehem. In chapter uh, 2, they, they, uh, or they, they, they journey back. And um, they're in, um, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, they journey back. And as they arrive, uh, the, the harvest begins. And Orpah stays in Moab. Ruth goes with Naomi. In chapter 2, we see Ruth trying to do some things to help her mother-in-law, help the family. She goes and scavenges in, in this field, provisioned by the law to pick up the scraps that are left. And as the, um, the chapter unfolds, we see that Ruth and her desperate situation uh, just happens, right, in quotes, to find herself in the field of a man named Boaz, who is a kind and gentle man, and uh, one of their redeemers, actually. He's a relative of theirs. And uh, we see this journey through the kindness of Boaz as that chapter goes on, that that Ruth uh, starts the day as, as an outsider gleaning around the edges of the field. And by the time the day uh, ends, she has been invited in to, to glean where, where the insiders glean and to even sit at the table of Boaz. And she's served by Israelite men, and it's just astounding. And in the course of that day, due to the kindness of Boaz, that she finds herself, the outsider, becoming an insider. And as the chapter closes and transitions into chapter 3, the, the wheels begin to turn in Naomi's mind, saying, he's a relative of ours, Ruth, he may marry you. Maybe we can get him to marry you and, and help us through this situation, and he could redeem us. And, and so chapter 3 is this meeting on the threshing floor, and Ruth boldly proposes to Boaz, and Boaz accepts and says, I will act as your redeemer. But there's a little bit of tension that is there, right? A little bit of tension because he, he also reveals to her, uh, there's another redeemer closer than me who has first right. And so there's some tension. Will, will Boaz be the one to redeem her or will it be this other kinsman redeemer? And we talked about that. You know, we're all kind of like, oh, no, not another. We're all on team Boaz, right? Boaz, is the, this is the love story here. We want these two together. But there's tension. We're not so sure. This other redeemer may step in. And uh, it's kind of left. And Boaz says, either way, whether it's him or me, you will be redeemed. And at least we have that promise. But chapter 3 ends with a little bit of tension. What's going to happen with Boaz and Ruth? So that's where chapter 4 picks up. So Boaz has promised that in some way, shape, or form, she will be taken care of. Verse 4 begins. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention 
and suggests that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then, Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders of all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. God, thank you for your word. This story, this true story, so significant in redemptive history. God, may we continue to be challenged by it as we spend a few minutes studying it this morning. Speak to us. God, we have, I have nothing to say uh, of my own, Lord, but your, your spirit, your truth, God, that's where uh, the power is. So you take your truth that you've preserved for us, Lord, and, and through your spirit, impress it in our hearts, challenge us and change us, correct us, build us up, whatever it is that we need, Lord. Pray that your spirit would, would work in us and through us right now. We pray this as always for the glory of Jesus and the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. So we trace through the history, right? Chapters 1 through 3. And uh, Boaz keeps his word, right? So he follows through on his promise that he made to Ruth, finding a redeemer for her. And uh, we see that right here in chapter 4, verse 1. He goes to the gate, the gate of the city. Now, this is kind of lost on us a little bit. We think gate, I think of this little, you know, swingy door or something like that and waits. But the gate in, New Testament, in Old Testament times and New Testament times is actually a significant place. This is the picture of the gate from the city of Beersheba, as it still remains today. And the gate was, was very large, and, and they would have these rooms off the sides of the gate. And this would be one of those rooms. So you'd, you'd have the entryway, and then you'd have these areas off the gate, there was a marketplace type feel, almost like a town square, really, is what the gate functioned as. And legal proceedings would take place here, and they would go and meet down in these alcoves. And so this is where Boaz goes to find this relative. He sits down, the text tells us. Boaz sits down, which indicates that he is ready to do business. He is keeping his word to Ruth about dealing with this situation. And in verse 1, we see something that we have seen a few times now in the book of Ruth, this providential wording. Just then, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. It's this same thought as, behold, wow, and look, and just by coincidence. It's this word of surprise. It's the same word used in chapter 2, verse 4, where the, and the narrator kind of plays with this throughout the book, isn't he? Kind of like, oh, it just so happened, or luckily, and, and he's using that terminology, but he's using it in almost like a, a fun way. He's using it as a device. You know, we know, reading it, that, that, that that's something behind that. There's something behind that. And he does it again here. It's just this word of surprise, of coincidence. It's the same word in chapter 2, verse 4. Look. Boaz happened to come from Bethlehem. It's the same word in chapter 3, verse 8, that indicates Boaz's surprise to see a woman lying at his feet at the threshing floor, like, wow, she's there. Again, it's, wow, the guy just happens to show up, a coincidence again in the book of Ruth, right? Boaz sees him, and he says, sit down, my friend. Now, this word, my friend, which is in, doesn't matter really what translation you're using this morning, they both... Uh, ESV, NIV, they'll use the word my friend. That word is kind of supplied. It's a guess. The, the literal terminology here is Peloni Almoni. Almost sounds kind of Italian, doesn't it? Like, hey, it's Peloni Almoni coming by. All right, we're going we're gonna, to it, translate it. We're going to use it. I'm going to use Italian accent today every time I say his name. How does that sound? Hey, Peloni. This is a, it's an artificial creation. It's a wordplay. The author's kind of having fun with this guy here. Um, Boaz would have obviously known his name, but uh, the, the author doesn't use his real name. The equivalent to this for us would be so-and-so. So-and-so came by. Uh, Daniel Block in his commentary actually says it would be very akin to us going Joe Schmo. Right? You make the little rhyme there. Baloney, Almoni, right? Joe Schmo came by. And that's what he's doing. And so not exactly sure why the narrator is doing this, but it seems most likely that this guy is serving as a foil to Boaz's kindness, his hesed, his love and generosity, right? Baloney Almoni, eh. at the end of the day, we see he doesn't, doesn't really go along with this, right? Um, some suggest that uh, the, the narrator, narrator is, is writing it in this way because this guy deserves to be forgotten. He's not going to do anything to help the name of this family be remembered. We're not going to remember his name either, right? So for whatever reason, 
this is, seems to be a purposeful omission by the narrator to keep Poloni's name unknown. So we're just going to call him Poloni throughout the sermon today, okay? Again, I'll try to do it in Italian accent every time. Boaz clearly and carefully presents the case. Clearly and carefully presents the case. And this is really significant. What chapter 4 is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a courtroom, okay? It's a legal proceeding going on here in chapter 4. And as you know, legal proceedings, it's important that every detail is, made, is, is done right. All right? Have you ever been involved with the court system um, through adoption or any, anything else? Right? You know, we've read the stories. We've seen uh, times over the years, even, even places where times where people are clearly guilty, they get let off because the documentation wasn't right or the proceeding wasn't done accurately. And chapter 4 is a highly detailed, accurate legal proceeding. That's significant. It's significant. Especially as we suggested back, back at the beginning in Ruth chapter 1, that if Ruth, and it is, is serving as an apologetic for the Davidic throne and the validity of David's claim on the throne with a Moabitess in his history, it's important that everyone understands that this line is legal and everything that happened that led to David having this throne was done legally and particularly. Procedure is crucial. Okay? Procedure is crucial. Right? We know this from life. When I, when I worked, uh, you know, years ago, you've heard me talk about it. I was a driver for right, a moving truck, uh, moving company, and uh, we had procedure. Right? Every morning, what we had to do, I was one of the guys who came. We came to the yard early, and we made sure the trucks had everything on them that they needed to have on them, and, and we'd get the list for the day, and if this truck was going somewhere and they needed a, a, a piano a dolly and things on it, we'd, support, we'd put the stuff on that truck for the, to transport a piano and make sure it had the right amount of pads on it. And there's all these things, and... And if you have a CDL license, you know, you know, you're supposed to do a pre-trip, and under, you know, all these things are supposed to be right. And one of the crucial things we we're always supposed to make sure is that the lock boards, or the walk boards, were secured under the trucks. You know, in the big moving vans, it's not like some of the U-Hauls where you, you just slide it in and out of the back. The walk boards are super heavy duty, and they actually come out, and, um, and they, they go on the side of the truck. And there's, uh, on ours, there was a, um, a thing, and you, you slid it in there, and you had to make sure the latches were up and secured. Those walk boards weighed several hundred pounds. And uh, if that thing comes loose on the highway, it's bad. And um, one day we got back to the yard, and my, my buddy Shane came in, and he was, he was visibly upset. I was like, dude, what happened to you? And he's like, Craig, he goes, we left. And he said, I didn't check the walkboard. He said, we're going down. He said, we're driving up uh, to Wilmington from Dover. Dover. And, um, and, uh, sorry. and uh, he said, I, looked, I heard this noise, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and he said, that walkboard is rolling a field beside me, digging up dirt, and it's just spinning off in the field. And he said, you know what would have happened if I had been in the other lane or if that had been someone's house? And it would have. It would have killed somebody. Right? Procedure. He skipped a step in the procedure, and it could have had dire consequences. Right? Ruth chapter 4 is emphasizing procedure because the implications of Ruth 4 are huge. So we see here that the right people and the right number are present. There's a quorum here. We see that the elders are here. One commentator emphasizes that the elders actually literally means the bearded ones were here. I'm like, hey, that should be a requirement. Elders, bearded ones. Uh, Matt, you need to get going here. You know, um, but the bearded ones, the old wise ones were here. Steve Wilson. Yeah, you get, the, get that thing going, Steve, that beard a little bit longer there. Uh, um, required uh, to be there, elders. They were highly respected people. In the community, right? They had authority. They had the authority to make decisions and to declare uh, legal proceedings and oversee legal proceedings. They were authoritative. 
So they're there. That's important. Then we see that Boaz begins with the land. It's interesting. He begins with the land and not with Ruth, which is interesting given his statements back in chapter 3 that the redemption that Boaz promised had to do with Ruth. There's no conversation about land. And yet when he sits down to talk to Poloni, he starts with land, right? Now why is he doing that? It could be as simple as the, the land and maintaining of the family legacy was the most significant issue here. Could be. Another thought that you see pop up is that he was trying to take the emphasis off of Ruth. And, and, and Ruth was going to be the side thing he was going to add in here later as he ends up doing. We don't necessarily know, but he starts with the land. And we learn right here that Naomi intends to sell her land and surrender the rights of Elimelech's ancestral land and live off the proceeds. Because obviously she and Ruth are not going to be able to uh, maintain this land. So here is the tragedy in the whole thing. The sale of this land most likely would cause the deed of the land to fall outside of the family. And this is partly then where the family name and legacy would go away. And this is why it would need to be redeemed. A redeemer within the family would ensure that the land stayed within the family. So again, this culturally, the significance of this is lost a little bit on us today, right? We, we move pretty easily and pretty regularly. We don't have this link necessarily to the land, but it was such a big deal to them, right? And we talked about this a little bit last week. That's why Leviticus, that's why the law allowed for a provision for land to stay in the family, right? If your brother becomes poor, it has to sell part of his land, part of his property. God was concerned about this for them. A redeemer could buy it so that it would stay in the family. I remember, the closest thing I remember to this, uh, the link that I make in my own mind, is um, my, my dad, the house my dad grew up in, down in southern Ohio. And it's, it's the house that he grew up in. It's the house that, you know, all, all my memories as a kid, going grandpa's wood shop, he had a garage in the backyard, and, and he and I would go out and spend hours making things out of wood and, and uh, you know, grandma's kitchen and the, the property. There was a ridge right behind the house, and I'd climb up that all the time, and um, just loved everything about it. And then dad had his stories. You know, this is the tree I caught on fire with firecrackers when I was a kid. And this is where the outhouse was, where we used to throw firecrackers down the exhaust thing when Aunt Lynn was sitting in there, you know. And like, oh, like, dad, I'm so proud of you, you know. And it's like, how cool is that? That's where Zach gets it from, you know. Um, but right, all these stories attached to that land and the feeling and the sense. And I'll never forget when grandma died or grandpa died and then grandma had to, had to move out and couldn't live there anymore and, and dad and my uncle had to sell the property. And I remember we were on vacation down there one time and we drove by the house and it was such a weird feeling. Like looking at it and going like, that's like, that was our family. Like it's not ours anymore. It's not my, like that was mine. I can't even get out and go, like, run around, like, I'll get shot at, you know, Southern Ohio, they'll shoot you, if you're on, you know, um, I can't, and it, 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 there's a sense of loss, um, it was that, and way much more for them, something significant was lost, was gone, when you lost your land, that's what's at stake here, so Boaz asked the question, in essence, do you wish to serve as the kinsman redeemer? Will you take care of this? Now, one of the things that was probably understood in this initial offer was that the kinsman redeemer probably understood that Naomi would come with the land. That in taking that land, he would also be responsible to care for Naomi. But he's okay with that. 
But what we see here is that Boaz is actively pursuing. He is making this happen, and he is doing everything to the detail of the law, presenting the case and inviting the kinsman redeemer to act on it. All the details here imply that what happens next will be legally valid. Okay? And again, I can't help but notice the parallels to Jesus, right? We read in Romans and Galatians that Jesus was born as a man under the law. It's such a significant point because Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills the law. That's why his sacrifice is acceptable. The procedure was so important. Boaz is doing that here. He's following procedure so that everything that happens afterwards would be legal and right. Jesus did it the right way. Boaz is doing it the right way. So we go back to our man here, right? Hey, Poloni Almoni. He's a good businessman. It's a good deal. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Like, why wouldn't you? Right? Why wouldn't you? I myself will do this, he says. There's no known heirs, right? There's no known heirs to the property, so he would acquire it. Probably the care for Naomi, if he's thinking, yeah, caring for Naomi, she's old. <laughs> it's not going to last that long. She doesn't eat much. No problem. <laughs> and here's, here's one of the bonuses. Even with the year of Jubilee in play, when land would return, to there's no heirs. So even in the land of Jubilee, Poloni is not going to lose this piece of property. So this is a good deal. I get the land. I'm going to make money off of it. This is great. And I'm never going to have to relinquish it. Perfect. Now, right, we're all watching the story. You know, if this was a movie, and we're going, no. It's supposed to be Ruth, right? It's that moment of tension in the Hallmark movie. Like, oh, no, like the, the wrong guy is going to get the girl. We're all on Team Boaz. No. This is bad. It's a sad part of the story. But then Boaz speaks one more time. This is the equivalent, you know, like the old like detective or lawyer movie, like Matlock or uh, Perry Mason. You know, like the bad guy's about to get off. And then bursting through the back of the courtroom is the assistant with the evidence. That it, and the judge is gavels about to fall, and he's like, no, you know, and the judge stops, and he's like, he's guilty. And he's, he gives it to Matlock, and Ben Matlock looks at it, and he's like, judge, your honor, I'd like to, and it all ends. Right? It's almost kind of what happened. There's tension. And the wrong guy is about to get Ruth. And the deal is about to be finalized. And Boaz says, but wait. But wait. There's more. What? There's a girl that comes with the property. You know, the whole thing stops. Ruth. Interesting. I think Boaz is acting really shrewdly here. He brings her nationality back into play. Oh, by the way, if you get this land, you get Ruth, the Moabite. You want to marry a Moabite? Well, she comes with it. Wait a minute. I think Boaz knows. I think he's playing his cards really well here. He's messing with him. It, it may seem strange to us, but Ruth is presented here as a legal and acceptable substitute for Naomi as a Limelech's widow. Like, so again, culturally, it's just some of the stuff that's lost on us, but marrying Boaz will make her Naomi's spouse. It's, that's the way it worked. But what's significant 
in all of this is, is this. There is no objection to Ruth being viewed as a legal entrance into the family, as a legal relative, as a legal substitute, right? The, the, the guy, Poloni, he doesn't go, wait a minute, he doesn't cry foul. This is an acceptable move on Boaz's part. Ruth is attached to the land. This substitution would be legitimate, he uses this terminology that kind of hits us kind of weird, acquire Ruth like she's a piece of property. But it, it doesn't mean buy here as it does with the land. It simply means that she comes with it as part of the legally valid transaction. She's attached to it. And Boaz unpacks it for us, and everyone would have understood this. The purpose for her being attached to it is in order to maintain and perpetuate the name of the dead with his property. So again, we're seeing the significance of this again. Ancestors living on their ancestral land was crucial in Israel. The name of the family and the property must be kept together, must be connected. And in that way, a person was kept alive in their minds. Through the family living on the land, the person lived on, right? Annihilation of a family was the greatest, one of the greatest tragedies in ancient Israel. And we understand this, right? This word name, it, it's more than just the name. It's, it's everything about that person, uh, uh, you know, their, their existence and, and, and their possessions and, and, and their spiritual impact, like the, keeping that memory and those things alive. We, we get this, right? Someone dies and, and sometimes there, there's something special we'll hang on to or there's a piece of jewelry or something like that. The other day we were watching um, uh, Nebraska volleyball. They're, they're one of the, traditionally one of the, the, the powerhouses, national powerhouses in women's volleyball. They're, they're incredible. They're consistently number one. And, and they set a record this past year. They actually played a volleyball game in their football stadium, and they, they broke a world record for the most attendees ever to witness a women's sporting event, like World Cup, the whole nine yards, watching Nebraska volleyball. It's a big deal. Kathy's mom and dad, huge Nebraska volleyball fans. And even that morning, we're, we're, gonna, we're planning on watching that national championship game. And Kathy, she said, a little tearfully, like, I want to watch it because it reminds me of mom. It reminds me of mom, right? We, we hang on to these things. Remind us, and that's that was so crucial to them. That's what Boaz wants to do here for his clan, for his family members. Poloni starts thinking here what this means for him that he marries Ruth, he's going to put the money up for this land, he's going to marry Ruth, it's going to be his until a child is born. And because this child is connected to Elimelech and it's Elimelech's land, eventually Poloni Elmoni is going to lose the land. And he's not going to get a return back on his investment as much as he thought he was. So Poloni Elmoni declines the offer. Now, he says he can't do it. I don't know. Can't or doesn't want to. Text isn't really clear. He's either unable to afford it or he's unwilling because the benefit to him diminishes when Ruth is added to the picture. And he doesn't want to endanger his own estate. He'd be paying money out for the property. No problem there. Because if there's no heir, he'll recoup that money over the years by what he would produce on the land. However, if there's a child born to Ruth, well, he's going to lose the land to that heir when the child would claim it. He would incur costs to raise the child and pay for Ruth and any other children she might have. And then there's Naomi as well in her care. And some commentators suggest that the children born to Ruth would even have a bit of a claim on Poloni's 
resources as well. So he thinks through the whole thing and is like, nope, not going to do it. By the way, don't, don't we function this way a lot of times too? I'll serve as long as it benefits me. <laughs> but the minute it doesn't benefit me anymore, I'm not so sure. Right? Poloni kind of has this attitude here. You contrast him with Boaz. Boaz is going to do this regardless of what it costs. Poloni's unwillingness highlights Boaz's hesed and his love and concern. There's an emphasis on the word I. Look in verse 6. I cannot redeem it. I might endanger my own estate. I cannot do it. I, I, I. Focuses on him. Repeatedly throughout this narrative, whenever we hear Boaz talk, he seems to be always focused on other people. It's a great example, a lesson for us, is it not? Poloni says to Boaz, you buy it yourself. And in this moment, the near redeemer cedes all rights and responsibilities. So it'll cost him something. Here's the takeaway from this. Redemption costs the redeemer. Redemption costs the redeemer. Does this sound familiar? The baby born in the manger in Bethlehem. Cost him something on the cross to redeem us, didn't it? Redeemer always pays a cost. Here's the thing, right? Unlike Poloni, Jesus had unlimited resources. He could afford it. And he had the love and willingness to sacrifice and pay the cost of death for us in our place. Again, an awesome picture of Jesus, our Redeemer, right? So Boaz secures redemption for Naomi and Ruth through a legitimate and legal transaction. It's a little break in the action here in verse 7. Now in earlier times, what this is communicating, one, is that Ruth was written many, many, many years after the narrative actually happened. Because the narrator is having to break in here and clarify for people who apparently didn't necessarily even themselves understand this transaction thing with the sandal. So he has to explain it. Most people think Ruth was written around the time of Josiah, years and years later, whatever. But he's explaining to us this transfer thing by giving a sandal. This is weird to us, right? Spencer doesn't know this, but in the first service, I sold this guitar to Derek. Sorry, Spencer. And I have Derek's shoe to prove it. He gave me the shoe. That was part of the deal, right? So sorry about your guitar. Uh, you can have Derek's shoe later if you want, right? But no, like, Spencer can't come now and make a claim. Actually, this breaks down a little bit because it wasn't mine to sell. But anyway, just go with it, uh, right? If someone comes, like, no, you didn't get, like, nope, I have the sandal. I have the sandal. And, and that's how they legitimized a transaction there. They took it off and exchanged it. And when the person received that sandal, the person who relinquished it, in that moment relinquished every claim that they had previously. Again, what a great picture of redemption, is it not? When Jesus dies on the cross and we confess him as Lord and receive him as our Savior, there's a legal transaction of justification that takes place. And Jesus' righteousness is exchanged for my sin, which is crazy. But in that moment, when that happens, Jesus has the sandal in his hand. And at that moment, Satan, the accuser, no longer has any claim on us. Death no longer has any claim on us. And any attempt that's made to accuse, Jesus says, nope, you have no claim. He has the blood, my blood, covering him. Right? That exchange. 
That exchange happened here. And Boaz says, today you are witnesses. Emphasis on the word today, right? He had promised Ruth. And Naomi followed up on this at the end of chapter 3. The man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Redeemers take care of their business. When the Redeemer says, I will do it, the Redeemer follows through. Today, and Boaz is making a point, I took care of it today. Jesus is the same way. When our Redeemer has made a promise that he will forgive us and ransom us, when he becomes our Savior, that transaction is complete. He follows through on his word, right? You are witnesses. This is validation. Boaz has the sandal and the witnesses for the formal transfer of everything Elimelech and his sons had owned. Again, legal precision is here. Ruth, the Moabitess. Ruth, Malon's widow. widow. There's no doubt who they are talking about. And legally, who the one is who is qualified to stand in as a substitute for Naomi to carry on the family name. Again, the implications of the Davidic line are so solid here. The non-Israelite widow now has full membership in Israel. David comes from a valid Israelite line. He is the true king. Right? That's what's going on here. Verse 10, his name will not disappear. Those blessings, right? These statements. The child who resides in Bethlehem, who we know now as Obed, Obed the son of Elimelech, his name will live on. The witnesses, the word witness or witness, again, is three times used in verses 9 through 11. We are witnesses, and that declaration makes everything official. By the way, redemption is a legal transaction. I wish we had time to unpack it. You go to the book of Romans and Galatians, justification, mentioned this earlier, right? Justification, it's a legal word, right? Redemption is legal. And when we come to Christ, the legal transaction takes place just like it did here, and redemption is secured. The elders and the people bless and affirm Ruth and Boaz. By the way, in verses 11 and 12 here, the prophetic nature of their blessing is staggering. May the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. <laughs> Ruth the Moabitess. Mentioned in the same breath with Rachel and Leah, these esteemed matriarchal figures in Israel's history. It's just so significant. They are wishing Ruth the same fertility and significant offspring that Rachel and Leah had. Right? Little did they know. They're wishing for Boaz's line. Note the shift, by the way, from Elimelech. The author's more concerned with the actual bloodline. They're wishing for Boaz's line to stand and be known in Bethlehem. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Talk about prophetic. Bethlehem, the city of David? Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus? I'd say the line became known in Bethlehem. What an amazing thing. Your offspring. Offspring in verse 12 is actually, if you read it carefully, offspring is, is related to Ruth. Pretty rare in the Old Testament. Offspring is almost always related and stated in relationship to the male. But here it's stated in relationship to Ruth. One of the commentators, uh, Daniel Block, sees this as casting Ruth in the same role as Eve in Genesis 3.15 and Rebecca in Genesis 24.60 where offspring is attached to the women. If this is true, and it seems very likely that it is, 
those are significant movements in redemptive history. And how awesome is that, that Ruth has taken her place. Then you have full circle back to the sovereignty of Yahweh in verse 11. May the Lord make you. May the Lord do this. Descendants and blessing would only come if God acted. It's significant to note here, right? The Hesed, the character of Ruth and Boaz, has been emphasized throughout this book. But even though that they are the ones who have been exemplary in their character, it's still God who's the source and reason for everything they get. It's not earned. It's still God who acts. There's this fascinating connection with Tamar in Judah in verse 12. We don't have time to go there, but Tamar... It's a prefiguring of Ruth. It's another woman who was a foreigner whose line was almost gone, who had to resort to drastic measures just to have a son. And that son is a son of Judah, and that line that comes from Tamar rises to prominence in Judah. And the line of Perez is the foremost family in Judah, and what they're wishing here is that the relatives, the offspring of Ruth and Boaz, would be as significant as Perez. And we know that that comes true through Jesus and David, right? One more bit of suspense. Ruth hadn't been fertile before. Will she have children now? Well, we don't have to wait very long in verses 13 through 17. The journey is complete. Ruth is now the wife. She's been the foreigner, the maidservant, the handservant. Now she is a wife, and there's no infertility this time. God does give her a son. There's almost this birthday party type of feel. The women are rejoicing and singing again like they did in Ruth 1 when they welcomed her back to Bethlehem. But now instead of welcoming empty Naomi back to Bethlehem, now they're welcoming Naomi's child who sits on her lap. And empty Naomi from chapter 1 is now full Naomi with a child nesting in her lap, a picture of fullness. All the ways are mentioned that this child will bless Naomi and be her redeemer she cares for him. Naomi has a son, Obed. Obed. Divine guidance had brought David to the throne. And the whole thing ends. I'm going to ask Spencer to come up as we finish here. The whole thing ends with a genealogy. A reminder that all leads to David and beyond. The last verses of this is the Davidic genealogy. The last person mentioned, this, this uh, um, is a linear genealogy. The last name mentioned in the linear genealogy, what it means is everything mentioned before that name is an affirmation of that person. David mentioned last, linear genealogy legitimizes him. Also interesting, there's a lot of nerd things in genealogies that you can find. The seventh name in a genealogy is often a person of honor and significance. Boaz is the seventh name in the genealogy. For instance, if you go back and look in Genesis, Genesis Enoch, the seventh name in the genealogy. Both men who walked with God and were used to fulfill his purposes. The royal line is established. God is accomplishing his work. Right? It all ends in triumph. Credit is given to God for what he has done. Always sovereign, always reigning. By the way, the name Elimelech, you know what it means? God is king. We were told at the very beginning of the story how this was going to end. Because we're told at the very beginning of the story through Elimelech's name, who's the one calling the shots. Some points of application that you can look at later. God cares for roots, seeks to bring them into his family. 
He welcomes foreigners. He welcomes outsiders. Divine providence, don't forget about that. Don't forget to demonstrate hesed and righteousness. The book of Ruth is about common people who act unselfishly and achieve uncommon results, right? Blessing and prayer are powerful. All the blessings and prayers of the book are answered in one way, shape, or form. A decision to give your life to Yahweh and find shelter under his wings will have implications far beyond what you can imagine. Your past does not define you. Your past does not define you. It didn't define Ruth, and it doesn't define you when Jesus is your Redeemer. And lastly, it's say, fear not. Confidently wait in your Redeemer. The rest that was promised and desired for Ruth is a rest that's coming for us as well, people and children of God. God is sovereign. God is king. Amen.